Uh, I want to welcome those that are now joining online. We've got about 200 guests uh, joining us online today, and so thank you very much for your online participation. A lot of people ask about the hybrid events post-pandemic. Are they working? Are they not? We're sticking with the hybrid model. It's uh, amazing how many people, not just from here in Toronto, but around the world are tuning in online uh, for these events. Uh, I'd like to thank our sponsors today at BLG for their generous uh, support of this conversation. We're also grateful to the Canadian Bankers Association for their season-long sponsorship. And I'd like to acknowledge the Canada Forest Trust uh, whose commitment to acting on climate change has reduced the carbon footprint of our entire season. I'd like to also recognize Air Canada, our official airline, for its generous sponsorships. Uh, we're also pleased to see students participating today in this important discussion, thanks to a sponsorship with the Toronto Metropolitan University. We're very glad you're here. Uh, I'd like to invite you to use the QA cards on your table if you have a question for our panel today. Uh, you'll see them in the, the middle there. Just write down your question, and folks will be coming around the room uh, to collect them and pass them off to Karen, our moderator for today, uh, who will uh, pose your tough questions to the panel. Uh, and now it's time to introduce our panel. So uh, I'd like to welcome Cherie Brandt, partner, BLG. At BLG, Cherie leads the National Indigenous Law Group and is a member of the firm's ESG initiative. She serves as an independent director at Hydro One and is a director with the Canadian Club Toronto. Dave Forrestal, yes, welcome Cherie. And maybe panelists, if you could come up one at a time as I call you. Dave Forrestal, Vice President, External Relations, TC Energy. At TC, Dave has responsibility for Indigenous community and government relations. He served as an advisor to a former Prime Minister, as well as Chief of Staff to the Minister of Natural Resources. Gregory Jack, Strategic Communications and Research at Loyalist Public Affairs. Uh, Gregory is a former VP of Public Affairs at Ipsos, where he worked with the Government of Alberta, CAP, and the Government of Canada, as well as Suncor Energy. He served in senior roles in the governments of Canada and Alberta. Welcome Chris Sankey, principal owner and president Blackfish Enterprises. Chris is CEO of Blackfish Enterprises and president of Blackfish Industries Management, a heavy civil construction and management company. Currently, Chris provides advice, direction, and strategic planning to the energy sector on engagement with communities situated on the west coast of British Columbia. He is a member of the Coast Chimshian community of Lac Quelans uh, near Prince Rupert and a former elected councillor of the Alams Band. He is a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute and was recently appointed as an advisor of the National Organizing Committee of the Canadian Gas Association and International Gas Union. And finally, moderating our discussion is Karen Ruskul. Karen's a vice president at Crestview Strategy, and prior to, uh, prior to that, she led an environmental consulting firm working with indigenous communities, building on a prior role supporting First Nations leaders as director of justice at Chiefs of Ontario. Uh, it's my pleasure to hand over the Canadian Club Toronto podium to Karen and our fellow panelists. Miigwech, Dan, and welcome everyone. Uh, thanks to all of you 
who made this short trek to join us here uh, at the lovely Fairmont Royal York. I see that it forced everyone to wear button-up shirts and ties. Congratulations. <laughs> and to the few hundred folks who joined us virtually, welcome. And although I'm sure you don't have a tie on, I'm sure you'll find the content inspiring. June is National Indigenous History Month. We have here a conversation uh, in and around the future of energy. However, I think we are at a point where we can recognize that Canada isn't moving forward in this industry without Indigenous nations. And so we will be focusing a large part of our discussion here on that theme, uh, and we're uh, very grateful to uh, Cherie uh, and Chris, who are two noted Indigenous leaders in the energy space who have joined us here today and impart with us um, their knowledge and experience and their vision for the future. In addition to Greg and Dave, who are also uh, well, non-Indigenous, but also working in this space and have been uh, partners, uh, leaders in reconciliation as well. So miigwech. All right, let's get into the meat of it. Uh, it truly does seem as though everyone is talking about energy and there's no denying that it's likely the most important discussion of our time. And while a robust focus on clean energy fueled by net zero goals seems to have dominated the political agenda these past years, geopolitical tensions have been caused to reconsider. So we're moving on to our vision. Each of you have been involved in the energy sector in various ways for the majority of your careers. Some of you have grown up in and around it. Uh, let's hear uh, more about uh, your experience and what you see for Canada heading uh, forward. Chris, over to you. Thank you. Um, before we start, I just have a quick question for Dave. Sure. Have you ever wondered why white men went to the moon? No. It's because you, fuck, you fuckers thought we had land up there, too. <laughs> Sorry, I had to say afterward. We're getting spicy right off the hop. All right. Welcome, so, Chris Sankey, so, to Ontario, to Toronto, all the way from British yes. Columbia. So now that we got that out of the way, broke a little ice, so I hope you got a laugh at that. Uh, look, listen, I, when I first got into energy, uh, I knew nothing about it. In fact, I learned all it was was forestry and fisheries for us on the coast. Uh, and then I started to understand the energy sector as uh, it evolved in the last uh, decade or so. Uh, I found that it, uh, it's in our everyday lives. I mean, each one of you in here today is giving off 1,000 BTUs just by existing, and that's emissions. And without energy, energy, we consume everything every day from our clothing to medical supplies to our housing to this building. Uh, without it, what, what do you do? Imagine a world without energy, and then imagine the world with the energy we have today, what could we do better? But for me, it has changed my family. It has brought, I grew up in poverty. I know what it's like to live in poverty. And the energy sector, the way I see this going is we need you as Indigenous people. We need you as partners so that we could grow our communities to have a stronger economy. Because when you help us, that helps the economy, and you get more people back to work to pay back on more, more taxes, more infrastructure. So we need your capacity because we only represent 4.3% of the total population. 
And I, my vision, or I would hope everybody's vision, is that together we're stronger. If we could form this partnership with you, Canada and indigenous population could be the next global energy powerhouse. Thank you. Cherie? Okay. <laughs> I don't have a joke. <laughs> Thank you. Dave, <laughs> yeah. Dave you're fine. Don't have Rest a joke. at ease. I will say it's such a pleasure to be here. My background is Mohawk on my dad's side. I'm from Mohawks of the Bay of Quinney. On my mom's side, Ojibwe from Wakamakong First Nation. If I think about my vision, uh, you know, it makes me think about sort of how I got into this practice. I'm originally a commercial real estate lawyer, um, and so infrastructure, buildings, I think that's just so cool. <laughs> and so, you know, the, obviously I, that's an area that I wanted to work in. But in truth, the projects that have been happening for Indigenous people uh, have been happening outside their communities. If you sort of think about energy in Ontario has been a history of projects developed across this country without the permission of indigenous communities. Um, and uh, that's something that we need to change. <laughs> we sort of think about, you know, getting to 2050, um, you know, the next, the, these next few years need to be different in my mind than the last uh, 20. Uh, my vision is that we would have more people in the space, my vision is that we would have um, a practice where we have indigenous people represented on all sides of the table. I'd like to get away from the adversarial practice, sort of when I refer to the last 20 years, you know, it was, it was, it's been a grind, right? Sort of working in the duty to consult space has been very difficult. It's always <clears throat> been a fight. Um, I'd like the next several years to not be about fighting, but to be about collaboration, about working together and seeing how we can build this economy and let's get more cool infrastructure in an indigenous lands. <laughs> Love to see it, here, here. Greg, over to you. Well, thank you and uh, great introductions. It's kind of follows a lot of what I want to say today too. I, I think this is the most important conversation that we can have. I mean, we are talking about an energy transition right now. Um, and we're talking about uh, climate change, but there can be no action on climate change without action on energy. And this is a discussion that Canadians haven't been having. When I was at Ipsos, I did a, uh, a large global survey of 28 countries, and we found, and, and we ended up publishing a piece on this, which called you know, Canada's Inconvenient Truths. And the fact of the matter is, Canadians are not talking about this issue enough. We're here today, we're talking about it. But you know, when we were chatting before uh, we came in here, somebody said, it's great that we can all come down to the, or the, the uh, Royal York and have this discussion, but we also have to talk about it in our communities. It really has to be a discussion about energy because it, it is what is driving our economy and it's what's driving um, a lot of the things that are happening geopolitically today. So we're gonna talk a little bit about that on the panel, but my background, I mean, I worked with Dave when I was in the federal government um, and I was at Suncor. And uh, at Ipsos, as I said, I, I did a, uh, a lot of work for energy companies. So I've kind of looked at it from different perspectives. Uh, and I'm doing a master's degree right now in of science uh, online in energy policy. So I think it's a very important discussion. I think it's a passionate uh, of mine. And I think that we have to have this discussion. That's why I'm really thrilled and really happy to, uh, to be part of this panel today. Very good. Thank you, Greg. Over to you. Great. Um, so Dave Forstell at TC Energy, formerly TransCanada Pipelines, and maybe just give a bit of context for our business. We operate significant generation and hopefully in the future storage assets, including here 
in Ontario, uh, significant oil transmission pipelines. And 75% of the gas that reaches Canadian homes and businesses is transported through TC Energy's um, pipes. So, uh, you know, important to the Canadian economy. And, you know, I guess my kind of story or background here, as Greg said, we, we worked together in Ottawa and had an opportunity to think about um, the resource sector, kind of at a more macro level, thinking about the public policy environment that encourages investment. And, and then following that, I, I worked in mining and was in the north of Chile in some very impoverished communities. And, you know, went in with sort of a view and had been told that there was a lot of opposition in the community. And really, I think that stemmed from a lack of working together and creating, you know, maximizing the benefit for those most impacted by the work. And once that started to happen, the, the, you know, the mood really changed. And so I, I guess I'm a big believer in the transformative opportunity that the resource sector um, can have for Indigenous people, Indigenous nations, remote communities, all Canadians, but, but also our, our international allies, and frankly, the world's poor. Like, if, if we don't get energy into international markets, there's no way to escape poverty without energy. So it's vitally important, and I'm, I'm just really excited to be participating in this conversation. Very good. Can we get a warm round of applause? <laughs> Great introductions, a little bit of sweet, a little bit of spice, a little bit of heads up as to what you can expect for the next uh, 20 to 30 minutes. So. Uh, Dave, is it fair to say that our idealistic uh, clean energy strategy here in Canada has been challenging for some more than others? What are you seeing out there? Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's right. I mean, I, I would say um, on the one hand, there's you know, a shared ideal and objective to get to net zero 2050. There's aggressive targets for 2030. But I think just a broad recognition across the developed world, the regulatory systems we've established do not allow us to reach those targets uh, for clean energy projects or for any projects, and, and frankly, for major infrastructure projects outside of the energy space. And so I think you're going to see um, a lot of kind of change to the way that projects, I hope, are um, both reviewed and, and permitted. I'd say more broadly, though, like we, we have to think beyond when we think clean energy or uh, decarbonization or net zero, we have to think globally about this issue. Like, we're, we're also impacted by our own surrounding. You know, if you live in a downtown center, it's frankly pretty rare that you have a long discussion with somebody who works in a hardware store where you're not buying a product from them or getting a perspective of a person who tills a field. And, you know, really, we're, we're just so impacted by our surroundings. And so in Kincardine, where Bruce Nuclear uh, operates, there's really high support for nuclear energy. Uh, we closed our coal plants in Ontario, so we don't think a lot about coal as an energy source. In Quebec, they have vast hydro resources. And so I think, you know, they think, they question, like, why do we need hydrocarbons at all? Um, but I, I think, you know, really, uh, so, so and, and maybe just taking that, like our, our energy policy is very kind of provincial or sectoral rather than global, although the problem we're trying to solve is global in nature. And I think Russia's invasion of Ukraine really upended that, where instead of people thinking locally, they began to sort of see that as the world quickly had to move off Russian gas, the alternative wasn't just renewables. In fact, 
Last year will be the highest amount of coal burned in human history in a single year, because that was the alternative source. Um, I think you know, people maybe thought the choice was Canadian LNG or renewables, when in fact it was Canadian LNG or Russian gas. And so we've had to confront some hard truths. I think it's also revealed maybe some truths that pre-existed um, the invasion. You know, 195 coal plants under construction or development today in the world, 90% of them um, in Asia. When Malaysia first started looking at the west coast of Canada to buy LNG, 7% of their energy came from coal. Today it's 50%. And of course, they're not currently buying LNG, which has, you know, 50% of the life cycle emissions uh, that coal has. Um, but also some positive stuff, right? Korea and the EU are recognizing gas as part of the transition in their taxonomy. Um, and I also think, you know, indigenous proponents and owners um, in the last decade have really, you know, come forward in a major way, and that's helped change the way Canadians think about energy. Cedar LNG, indigenous-owned, um, silisms, again, on the West Coast, you know, there's an equity option for our uh, liquefied natural gas transport line, CGL. So I think all that's very positive. And, it, you know, you see sort of Alberta leading the way as well with the Alberta Indigenous Opportunities. So all of this, I think, is positive. And maybe I'd just say, like, this is a moment for Canada where, despite what we read, actually there's broad public support for the development of our energy resources, you know, including in British Columbia, um, there's growing Indigenous support and desire to partner. And so maybe I'll just, I'll conclude by quoting, if I may, um, Christopher Freeland, uh, who said, it's so rare in the life of a country that doing the right thing is also economically advantageous. Right now, LNG is exactly that. We can help our friends support democracy around the world and create some great jobs in Canada. So I agree, and I think it's time to seize the moment. Very good, thank you. Very insightful. <laughs> I did see Chris nodding profusely. I'm sure it's not another joke. <clears throat> what do we think, Chris? First, I, I just want to apologize. I wanted to introduce myself in my traditional ways. Um, so my, my given name is uh, Wadzim, and it means a person that enters quietly. <laughs> and I, I'm Gisbet Wada, Gitwell Giyots. Gisbet Wada is Blackfish, and so I named my company after Blackfish because it had meaning to me. And before I go into what you're going to ask me, Karen, and there was some of the best advice I've ever got was from my late uncle, whose name I now carry on. And he said two things to me. He said, listen, kid, I'm following you. I don't, I'm not on social media, but I follow you. I, I support you. Don't worry about trying to make everybody happy. It's just not going to happen. And the other advice I got, try not to be an asshole all the time. <laughs> so I took that advice to heart. Uh, God bless them. So, sorry, Karen, the question again. Right, so um, you've not been shy <laughs> about your position on the transition to clean energy. Uh, we've also heard you talk about the importance of sustainability. So enlighten the room with your uh, vision and uh, insights on how those two can uh, live hand in hand. Sure, look, there's no secret that... Um, Sustainable development is on the minds of every Canadian, if in fact around the world. Um, I get that wind farm is going to be part of the national grid. I get that solar panel is going to be there. I'm a big proponent of the fossil fuel industry, from nuclear to hydrogen to uh, diesel, cleaner diesel, oil, gas, all of that. 
<clears throat> and one of the things I found in my travels and where I go, uh, the only difference between Fort McMurray and Interior and the coast is a lot of the indigenous population aren't talking to one another. And I found that energy literacy is sorely missing, not just within our communities, but across the country of what is diesel, what is hydrogen. What are all of these fuels that we consume every day? And I think it is so important that we bring experts into the room to talk about it. I've never been one to shy away from these difficult conversations because really that's where all the answers are gonna be found. We could yell each other at each other all day long, that's not gonna solve anything. I think it's incumbent that this room and everybody here uh, sit down across from one another and have a, a, a conversation about energy. Oil and gas aren't going anywhere for a very, very long time. But what do we do? What can we do to make it better? You know, by 2050 and beyond, oil and gas demand is expected to go up, if not the same, if not greater, around the world. So why don't we position ourselves internationally to be that supplier to our, our allies in partnership with indigenous communities. So the stuff I've been blessed to be involved in in the oil and gas sector is not just the oil and gas sector itself. A lot of people know that a lot of this technology is being developed within the industry called the catalytic technology. And it's gonna, I personally and professionally believe it's gonna revolutionize the pipeline industry. It's gonna reduce emissions, which that's all we wanna do. It's gonna eliminate dill bit in the oil sector. There's a potential to clean up and eliminate the tailing ponds. And it reduces 30% emissions of, of an LNG facility right off the bat. So this is the stuff you don't get to hear of the, that, the, the information that I've been so blessed to be a part of, of these incredible minds right here in Canada. And energy, you could have energy poverty, which we don't want. And I think that anybody, you don't have to be indigenous or not, I don't think you, it's not fun watching people live in poverty. So if you take that opportunity away from us, when we're finally at the table, you're just gonna revert us right back to dependent on the INAC system. And it's just never gonna work. I, I grew up in poverty, I understand the socialist side, and I get that we are a predominantly I find that Canadians are a centrist voting base. But I think people in the big cities don't see what we see on the ground from policy development at the higher level. I don't think you understand how difficult and how hard it is for us to accept that when we're the ones that have to live with it. And if we're not a part of the policy development, Indigenous people will continue to fight because they're not a part of the conversation when it comes to policy. They're part of the conversation after policy is implemented. And I, I wouldn't do that anymore because it has never worked since INAC came into inception. It has never worked when they wanted us to be a different race. It has never worked when we had to wait for a paycheck to feed our families. It has never worked to collect welfare. So why would we continue to rely on this? I'm not saying government's all bad, but in partnering with Indigenous communities, we could have a very strong economy for everyone. And in particular, I would like to see more people, which I'm witnessing with the TC project and LNGC. Like, we, we had $36 billion walk out the door on us. 
We had a $2.4 billion impact benefits agreement, $1 billion in direct award fair market value bid, $650,000 in training to employment for trades, $1 million for academia if you want to become a lawyer. But a lot of people didn't know when P&W left, they didn't know we lost one of the largest car manufacturing plants that wanted to come to Canada which was from China to, to manufacture in the Prince Rupert area. We are close to, to this, the Asian market, Southeast Asia. I'm, I'm very blessed to know a lot of these guys that I've dealt with through that whole process. Uh, they're now all in upstream and you know, the heads of their, their major corporations over in Malaysia. But at the end of the day, my focus isn't just about getting clean products. So one, one or two things. Like, I want to clean up, help clean up the energy industry. That's where you're going to win all these wins for reducing the reduction of our carbon footprint. I want to be able to help move things forward. Response. I grew up on the coast. I grew up fishing. I grew up in forestry. I don't want to damage it. I don't think there's a living human being on this planet that wants to destroy the earth on half of, on half of development. I don't know anyone that would want to do that. No, I don't certainly want to do it. So let's be smart about it. Let's move forward together and put in a plan. And that plan is partnering with Indigenous communities to put together the EA process in the policy development from the ground up. It, and then the other part of plan to that is if you could get alignment, which I'm tasked to do right now, to alignment with First Nation communities, and let's call it an economic corridor. If you could do that, which uh, we seem to be winning that, you de-risk the project and you get investment to come to the table. And on the flip side of that, so there's three things that come out of that. One, you get community support. Two, you've identified an industrial area. And three, you got alignment. And the most important piece, oh, I should say the next piece of that is investment in industry. Now, if you don't do that, I can tell you right now wholeheartedly there is international money waiting to cash in on that check. My perspective is that why don't we make it Canadian made, Canadian born, Canadian financed? Because I'm telling you, you all know this, you're in the, you know, right in the center of the, the money game that international communities are ready to write a paycheck or write a check to partner with us. And there are projects moving forward as we speak in the oil and gas industry. So my message to, to you out here is that don't forget about us out in the West because if we could work together, we just strengthen our economy. I mean, we have to. Energy security is, should be front and center in everybody's mind. Energy and food security. Without energy, you can't have food security. So the way I relate this to our people is that if I want to go out and go get fish for my family, I need to feel the boat. I need to pay for it. Everything about the boat requires minerals. Everything about trying to catch a fish requires fuel. In today's day and age, we have chainsaws. We have all these things that we could do to make things better. Because without technology, in partnership with indigenous and the stakeholders, industry, there'll be no project. And the only time we are against a project is if we're not a part of it. So let's sit down, have a discussion, and then let's move forward together as a country. Because again, I will keep repeating it. We are together, we are stronger. Thank you. Miigwech, Chris.
Um, did anyone else catch that uh, Chris reference to the chainsaw as a useful piece of technology? I certainly caught that, and I don't <laughs> think anyone disagreeing with you. <laughs> Time for advancements. I appreciate your point on the policy framework. There's a lot of talk. I think at this point Canada knows that we need to move away from the Indian Act, but there's a lot of questions as to what that looks like. And there are people out there who are tabling some, some ideas. Um, I'm always inspired by the James Bay Cree Agreement that provided uh, an agreement with the people, uh, the Crees of James Bay in that region, um, with the chance, the opportunity to, to govern their own people, to govern their nation through that agreement. They got out from, from the Indian Act in doing so. There are other nations across the country, I think of the, the New Chelnut Treaty out in uh, West Coast as well as others, um, and also self-government talks and agreements that are uh, being discussed and, and finalized across the territories up north. So um, thought I'd share that little bit of insight. I don't know that that gets a lot of attention, but ideally what would be nice for the more, they call them historic treaties, like the Robinson-Huron Treaty of 1850, uh, where my community sits, um, to be able to sit down and negotiate modernizing these treaties so that we too can engage um, in self-government and pave a, way, uh, pave a pathway forward for, for, our, for our kids and, and next generations to come. So Cherie, I saw you nodding. I know you have insights to share. Yeah, no, you know what? You, may, you raised a lot of points there, Chris, so thank you. I wanted to pick up a little bit on a, a little bit of what you were saying around policy. I mean, I think it's, it's a double-sided topic, right? Some people can identify with some policies have actually led to all sorts of incredible opportunities for Indigenous people, for industry. Uh, but, you know, we, so we either have policy or we have laws, right? And if I sort of look on the legal side, with the duty to consult um, work that's happened, I don't think I've seen the changes that have happened within you know, Canada as a whole move any faster than through policy, <coughs> through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission work, through all of the reconciliation-based activities. Those are policy-based decisions where you have willing partners coming together and saying, let's do this it's not a law, it's not a decision, right? And so I think, I think it's a double, it's a, you know, it cuts both ways, right? But I'm very mindful that each province is different and we sort of have that piece to tackle with. So when we think about, you know, what's happened in Ontario, I think we can look at a ton of great things that have happened for Ontario on the procurement side. Think of all sorts of First Nation communities that have been able to participate in the economy, and for them, they are focused on economic sustainability. I can't generalize, but it would, it would definitely be more on the economic side before it's on the environmental sustainability side. It's about how are we going to put own source revenues to the nations to then allow them to focus on their own institutions and development of their own capacity building around environmental knowledge. Um, so there's, there's obviously a lot and it all, it all relates together, the, uh, but each province is different, right? We have, you know, Alberta's quite different than Ontario, right? We're all subject to the common law at the end of the day though. And so I think, uh, you know, we see governments still uncertain in how they're navigating through the duty to consult processes. And this is obviously a place that, you know, we like to 
advise in and, and assist, you know, both industry and on the First Nation side. Uh, but it's really just trying to help everybody get to better decisions and let's spend more time on doing the deals than fighting about the deals. I just, I don't have, I don't have the energy for it anymore and I think it's actually preventing us as Indigenous people from building our own knowledge on the environmental side. So I think there's gonna be a time that's gonna come when we will be tasked to explain what are your substantive impacts relating to a project that is located within traditional territories. And we have to answer that question. We have to be able to point to our traditional knowledges, to our interests. How do we want to use the land? How do we want to be involved in, that, in those lands? And if we can't answer that question, I think we're gonna lose the momentum that we have. So I'm looking forward to the opportunity to move forward and focus on those ideas. <laughs> I agree. Cherie, there's a lot of talk about partnership, and we know that in particular there's a lot of talk about partnership on major projects across the country. Just, you know, briefly walk us down that line. It's not really a brief conversation. We could probably have a whole panel on that Very alone. <laughs> but uh, share your insights with the room. Yeah, so I'll just share with you some little things that come to mind. I think for each community, they obviously want to do their own deal, right? I think if each community could point to their own transactions and say, we have done this, we've worked with this partner or this partner, or we work with this and this and this, you know, each community would like to be in that place because it represents their own healing, it represents their own journey, it represents their own success. I don't think that's actually a sustainable proposition. We actually have to think about how, as Indigenous communities, we can work together. And so it's where are those collective transactions? Where are those places where we can actually aggregate, collect, form the same ideas and say, yeah, we are part of the same treaty, and yes, we are going to work together. Or yes, we're part of a you know, certain, certain area within Ontario or different parts of the provinces but we have to be able to work together and do uh, these transactions because I, you know, we just keep hearing on the province side, on the Fed side, why can't you guys all get together? <laughs> like, why, can't, why, can't we just get, why can't we just do one big deal, right? So I think that's a real, that's a reality. That's a humanity, that's a human-based instinct. And so for us, we should be thinking about how can we do more transactions as partners, as collaborators and make sure that our interests are protected. So thinking of major projects, um, I still think to the Hydro One transaction that we did, we brought 129 First Nations all under one roof uh, for what will be a you know, billion dollar fund over the next 20 years, right? Um, those projects cannot be done, cannot get over the line without support and so, you know, so what, is, what are the ingredients, right? We absolutely need equity financing. We absolutely need equity support. We absolutely need banks to start to think more creatively about how can we bring multiple assets under one roof, right? How can we, you know, in Ontario, we have uh, dozens and dozens of projects that have been funded under the FIT program they're all gonna get to their year 20. How are these, pro like what's gonna be the next 20 years? And how can we enter into cross collateralizations <laughs> and you know, do these projects in the next, for the next 20 years, right? So 
That, that type of major project development will happen. It has to happen. And what it absolutely means is it needs sophisticated work. We're seeing the work getting more complicated. Absolutely. I can keep going, I'm sorry. <laughs> so Dave's going to add a few thoughts here, and then we'll go over to Gregory to hear about uh, what Canadians are thinking of this. Dave? Yeah, I would just say I think, you know, we're very excited by the Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation, you know, essentially putting a billion dollars, and I think um, Premier Smith committed to an additional billion in the last election, you know, a balance sheet to work, to basically backstop the loan that... First Nations, Indigenous communities take on to buy parts of major projects and operations, cash flowing operations that create, you know, multi-decade um, own source revenue for Indigenous communities, but also put them at the table as owners, you know, not, not merely as participants or um, contractors, though that is important too. There's clearly a federal role here. I mean, the operation of the Indian Act is part of what denies the ability to have security for First Nations communities in the first place. Um, I think the federal government has taken some really good steps through the Canada Infrastructure Bank, but they've limited the eligibility of projects. And again, you know, from our perspective anyway, if a nation, if a, if a nation, if a chief and council have said, this project, this operation is appropriate for our nation, then, then why are we second guessing that? And so I think our view is, you know, more balance sheet needs to be put to work to um, exactly as Sheree said, finance these you know, important ownership participation and change the dynamic um, from, you know, from participants to owners who sit at the owner's table and think about capital expansion in the same way that an owner thinks about capital expansion, which doesn't remove Section 35 rights, which doesn't impact the ability to participate in the environmental review process but, but answers a key foundational question, which is how do I benefit from this thing which is taking place in my land? And I think that you know, when, we, when we address that and, and do a better job of solving that, many of the kind of fights of the past will start to fade away, I hope. Absolutely. Um, Gregory, what are Canadians thinking when it comes to the energy sector? And is it helping us or hindering us in moving in moving ahead as a nation? Well, you know, I think, and Chris and, and Sherry brought up some really good points um, around literacy and, you know, the fact that most Canadians couldn't tell you where they get their energy. They're, they're, they're sort of generally aware uh, that oil makes gasoline, I suppose. In Quebec, uh, we certainly know that our energy comes from Hydro One, or uh, Quebec Hydro. But the level of literacy that Canadians have about the energy sources that, that uh, they have access to and that what fuels Canada's economy is very low. And you don't see that in other countries that are similar. You don't see that in Norway. You don't see that in Australia where they've had a discussion about how to develop those resources. And, you know, hearing from everybody today, really it's about economic development and empowerment and reconciliation as an idea that uh, reconciliation with Indigenous communities, not as token measures and not as stakeholder consultation, but as partnership, as equity partnership. But in order for some of that to move forward, we actually have to have the discussion as a country about energy and what we want to do. And you know, the, the, the question on climate change um, comes down to more than simply reduction of greenhouse gas emissions or a move to uh, clean energy sources. Um, right now, especially with the war in Ukraine and coming out of COVID, uh, we're seeing a lot of focus on reshoring. We're seeing a lot of countries who are saying, we want to have access to our own energy resources. Canada has a tremendous opportunity to bo both be a uh, safe and clear supplier of, of, of 
ethically produced energy. And bringing the indigenous communities in, we can be world leaders in, uh, you know, in that as well. There's a, an energy justice question here um, on, on two levels, really. The first one is sort of uh, restorative justice or, or you know, making up for past wrongs. And the opportunity to, to do that uh, with indigenous communities is there on the energy file. But the other one is um, you know, equality of opportunity. And, and it really is puzzling that Canadians aren't thinking about how much we are um, squandering by not having this discussion and thinking about energy as a whole. Um, you know, the German chancellor came over to visit the prime minister last summer and essentially was saying we could use some LNG. And the prime minister said, well, we're going to make you green hydrogen. And that's great. <laughs> that's wonderful. If we can make green hydrogen and ship it over, um, I'm sure that it'll be a, a really useful source of energy. But right now, the world needs certain types of energy. And as I think Dave said, what happened when uh, Russian oil and natural gas was displaced, it was displaced by coal. It wasn't displaced by Canadian natural gas. And a lot of people might say, well, you you know, natural gas is emitting, it shouldn't be part of the future energy mix, uh, and that's a discussion that can certainly be had, but it is part of the current energy mix. And in order for us to take advantage of, of our opportunity economically, to have proper reconciliation uh, with Indigenous people, um, and really to contribute to the post-COVID, uh, post-invasion of Ukraine world, we have to have that discussion. And I don't believe Canadians are tuned into this or thinking about it to the extent that I think they really need to be, because it is a tremendous opportunity and um, a tremendous risk for us if we don't start to engage. Very good, thank you. So we are near end. I'm getting the, the code here from Colleen. Um, we had about two more rounds to go on questions. <laughs> as these things go, you always run out of time. And as you can tell with uh, the insights here, uh, we could probably spend a whole afternoon together. Uh, I do want to get to at least one audience question. I think I have about 15 cue cards here. So uh, there's definitely interest on this topic. Maybe we host another conversation in the fall on this very point. I think there's a lot of a thirst and a hunger to dive into this. Um, so we'll start with Chris and we'll go down the line for some closing um, comments, uh, concluding thoughts. Um, there is one question, you, you can choose to take it or not. Uh, someone's quite keen, what does Canada need to do to actually get a pipeline built? So uh, speaker's choice, either you go with that one or you provide the room with uh, some insights of your own. Go ahead, Chris. <clears throat> yeah, sure. Alignment. Uh, you know, anybody that follows me or knows what I do, I never ever talked about a project and still haven't. Sue, if you could get alignment with First Nations along that pipeline corridor or the energy corridor, we call it, you're going to de-risk the project. Failure to do that, you'll run into all sorts of roadblocks. It's just reality because we're tired of being beggars in our own land. This is about intergenerational wealth transfer. Instead of managing poverty, we want to manage wealth for the next seven generations and coupled with our knowledge, and, that, and that's happening. I think it's quite indicative to understand what's happening out in the West versus what's happening out here. And you're right, you, you've all hit on it. It's, it just it changes, the landscape changes. There's one thing that's for certain, it's that engagement early and meaningful engagement is what's going to get the pipeline built and the alignment, 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 de-risks so business and investment come to the table and invest with us. And there's a lot of opportunity and I think today uh, my message is let's be on the right side of history. You know, I, um, I, I'll, I'll leave you with this. Um, when my time comes, 
I want my kids to know that their dad was on the right side of history, that I was there to help our people and Canadians abroad to do the right thing. And we need money to do that. And we need energy and we need social service revenues. And together, we're stronger. Very good. Gregory? Same question or? Yeah, speaker's choice. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, uh, we have a tremendous difficulty in this country getting anything built recently. Um, infrastructure, critical infrastructure is another conversation we have to have. But I think that the, the, this is a really wicked problem because the pipeline became essentially, and, and I'm thinking about KXL, Dave, but um, all the pipelines, Gateway and that, uh, became a bit of a symbol for whatever cause you wanted it to be a symbol for. So it was a proxy for climate action or it was a proxy for um, you know, indigenous rights or it was a proxy for uh, somebody who basically didn't want us to, to be using fossil fuels at all. Um, it wasn't never really about the pipeline only. And, and now, you know, I go back to my earlier point. Um, there, there was general awareness of Keystone uh, among Canadians, but you know, this, this is a debate that played out in the media for years. I remember when I was um, on the Beyond the Border working group and the Prime Minister goes down to the United States and makes an announcement with the President about this new perimeter security and economic development uh, partnership between Canada and the US. First question he gets, what about Keystone? And that was, of course, the day that Obama announced that, uh, that I, don't, I think he was not gonna permit it. And this was you know, well over 10 years ago and the debate is still going on. So, you know, but having said that, Canadians are generally not really aware of these things. And having that discussion about energy has to include a discussion about pipelines, um, what they really are and what the alternatives are, what the trade-offs are. Because um, I think that what's happened is that some of the opponents to these things, and, and not just pipelines, but some of the opponents to a lot of energy, have a disproportionate voice in the media that sounds like they're louder than they really are because they, they are taking up a lot of the oxygen in the space and Canadians are not really thinking about it or talking about it as much as maybe they should be. Yeah, I'll just jump in. Um, to get pipelines built, I actually joined my law firm to get pipelines built. <laughs> I had spent 10 years working with First Nations, working with Indigenous communities, and I'm a proud Canadian. I want, I want uh, to be a part of a proud Canada. And so I, that means for me, crossing the table, getting on the other side of the table, and, and, and breaking down barriers. So I think that governments need help. I think industry needs help. I think that we cannot underestimate what being heard and listened to is all about. Um, that healing process for indigenous communities is so real, it is so profound, that if we create the space for past grievances to be heard and understood, we will find an incredible sense of growth and healing for everybody through that process. So that's what I wanna be a part of and, and uh, hope we get there. Sure, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I could say much better than Chris said what I think needs to be done to get pipelines built. Um, I think, you know, key in that though is, you know, currently there is broad public support for oil and gas in Canada. It just doesn't feel like it. You know, I, we, we just recently um, looked at some public opinion research, 70% support in British Columbia for LNG Canada and Coastal Gas Link. You would never guess that, you know, sort of looking at the media. 34% strong support versus 9% strong opposition. That's almost four to one. But, you know, I think really if the, the people who are the beneficiaries or who are going to be the beneficiaries are, are 
well, let me put it differently. These things work when indigenous communities, unions, and others benefit from these projects. And so to get pipelines built, resource companies, large companies need to ensure on the front end that people understand how they will benefit from these projects as owners, as participants. And then, you know, we need to actually, as, as resource companies, step up and participate in this debate in Canada. It, it will not happen, you know, um, we, we are not going to see a favorable sort of resolution or outcome if we're not participants in this discussion, if we're not proud to support the industry in the way that, you know, people um, on this stage. But, you know, thinking about somebody like Chief Crystal Smith of the Heisla Nation, who, who I think is probably the most effective advocate for LNG in Canada today, fought for Cedar LNG, made clear how it benefits her people, her nation, and, and you know, that to me is, is essential to moving forward, so. Absolutely. Uh, there were a lot of bobbing heads today at lunch. As you can see, we're all up here kind of just going up and down, up and down. And I saw some of you participating in that new dance move that we've created. Uh, an absolute pleasure to hear from the four of you. Uh, I speak for the room boldly, I suppose, um, that we're walking away smarter and perhaps uh, more motivated to be part of the solution. We see opportunities we're eager to take partnership, and we're looking forward together. Miigwech, everyone. Thank you. Miigwech. Thank you very much. That was fantastic. We really appreciate all the insights and, and, and the, uh, the thoughts shared. We don't usually get 15 question cards up for the uh, Q&A period, so there's clearly a demand for this kind of conversation in the country, and it's... Uh, it's timely, it's pressing, it's uh, uncomfortable at times, like we all felt for Dave at the start. And um, I think, uh, uh, you know, I think it's one we, we need to keep having. Um, let me just uh, quickly wrap up here, everyone, and say um, a special thanks to Karen for organizing today's event, bringing together this fantastic panel. That was wonderful. <laughs> The Canadian, the Canadian Club Toronto has its final in-person event of our season next Tuesday, June 13th. Uh, the President and CEO of Purelator Canada, John Ferguson, will be here uh, to speak about supply chain issues in these challenging times. Visit us online at canadianclub.org to learn more about our events or purchase tickets for upcoming. And a final thank you to our fantastic sponsors at BLG uh, for being such great supporters of the club and the conversations we're having. Thank you very much. Enjoy your day. Avoid the zombies. <laughs>